The headlines are screaming at us. Schools are failing. But are they? Last season, we tried to figure out what made a school good by looking deeply at just one example, that of an unquestionably bad school that became, by all reports, good. This season, we come at this question by looking at the apparent controversies surrounding schools in America to see what sense we can make of them. Bailey taught us where to look for the markers of schools that are good, taught us to attend to what takes care of teachers so they can take care of students and grow together, and attending as well to the shared responsibility and rich relation. It turns out that what's wrong with schools is not the teachers or the learners, but a policy-level failure to create the conditions in which education can flourish. What are those conditions? Glad you asked. I'm Barb Stengel, the host of Chasing Bailey. Stay with us this season as educators from Bailey and beyond speak out. pandemic is endemic, or nearly so. We're still getting sick at inconvenient times, but the impact on those who actually test positive for COVID-19 is mostly annoying rather than debilitating. Still, the pandemic left us with a huge educational hangover, and the headlines really are screaming at us. Here are a few that prompted this episode. From the online newsletter, The 74, we get this. Stanford economist Eric Hanushek on COVID's trillion-dollar impact on students. The article itself refers to the shocking toll Hanushek estimates on children's lifetime earning capacity. And get this language. Based on cratering eighth-grade math performance, measured by last year's National Assessment of Educational Progress. In truth, NAEP scores have been declining for a decade, long before the pandemic. Maybe the learning loss that folks are screaming about is not due to the pandemic, but to a skewed emphasis on testing above all that has proven itself a failure. Another headline from the 74, time is running out. COVID-19 set back older students the most, study finds. Again, we have an economic lens and justification at work here. The implication is that our kids are losing ground in the race to economic security. This ain't nothing, but it isn't everything. This worldview is not educational, but economic and political. It reduces youngsters to their economic value. The educator in me, and the parent and the grandparent, fights that reduction. What about the study that this headline draws from? The Center for Reinventing Public Education at Arizona State recently released The State of the American Student, Fall 2023. They argue, we are failing the COVID generation. It's time to adjust course. The president of the right-leaning but usually reasonable Thomas B. Fordham Foundation, Mike Petrilli, 
wrote in the New York Times that we can fight learning loss only with accountability and action. Petrilli's commentary compares the bad news that just keeps coming to a kind of educational long COVID syndrome. From CNN's Katie Labosco, we learned that schools got $190 billion in pandemic aid, but the funds haven't reversed learning loss. That's a lot of money. It amounts to roughly $3,800 for each of America's 50 million school students. But still, the implication of that headline is not obvious. Note for now that school districts did not use all of their funds to address learning loss. In fact, the American Rescue Plan Act, which provided most of the pandemic aid, required only that at least 20% of the funds be used to, quote, address the academic impact of lost instructional time. Now, are all these headlines accurate? Maybe not. But here's what's interesting about the headlines. Whether or not commentators see a crisis post-pandemic, their attention is on systemic indicators and elements, and their prescriptions are couched in terms of macro-level changes. Paul Hill, who founded the Center for Reinventing Public Education as a post-NCLB school reform tool, offers a good example. Quote, the solutions will require new modes of spending, performance measurement, and school oversight, as well as much greater flexibility in teacher hiring, training, and work. Superintendents and school boards can't make these changes all by themselves. They'll need serious help and new thinking from governors, state legislators, the federal government, and philanthropy. Whoa, where are the teachers and the students in this response? You already know what I think. If we want to respond to our pandemic hangover in ways that promote not just back to normal, but vibrant and vital growth in schools, Let's look at the experience of the people in those schools. In July of 2022, I had a conversation with Bailey teacher leaders, Whitney Bradley Weathers, Keisha Harding, Lindsay Nelson, and Kelly Aldridge Boyd. At the end of nearly an hour of talking about the joys and challenges of teacher leadership at Bailey, I found myself launching into a bit of a rant expressing my frustration about our failure to take advantage of the opportunity to reinvigorate schools that the pandemic offered us. And those teacher leaders picked that right up and gave us an awful lot to think about in just a few minutes. Listen in. Yeah, I think the biggest lesson at Bailey is that you have to teach the human first before you can teach the content. So you know, I, I came from a super large school district before I stepped out of education. And it was all about um, making up the learning, making up the learning, making up the learning. And I remember thinking to myself at Bailey, I remember when school was closed for two weeks and what we did, Kelly, you remember we got in a car and we had on these boots and we were slipping and sliding down the hill, getting these kids food. We all just said, we got to get them food. Like who cares if we take books to them during this time when school is closed? Who cares? These, these babies aren't eating. And when they came back, they were ready to do whatever we asked them to do. Those kids would have run through a wall for us. 
because we cared about them. And what people get wrong, I think, and what Bailey got right is at some point when the right people got in place, we said, okay, we have to teach humans first. We have to teach to their heart first before we get to their head. And I have never been on a team that was so dedicated to the humanity of others at, than, than what I had at Bailey, not since. And I've, I've had, I think, three jobs, three or four jobs since Bailey and have never worked with a group of people who were dedicated to getting at the humanity. And that's what people are going to get wrong post-pandemic. Our kids are suffering post-pandemic emotionally. Academics be damned. They'll, they'll get there, right? They'll get there. And then in college, they'll all like go different places or post-secondary experiences, they'll all go different places again, but they'll never forget during the pandemic how sad and isolated they felt. And if we don't get at that, it doesn't matter. Okay. You're, you're so right. I, um, I, I'm at a madness school right now. And so in parent meetings, all they really care about is the grade. But as the teachers, we're like, who cares about the grade right now? Who cares about um, this A, right? They're in seventh grade. No one's ever going to see these grades. Right now, the focus should be on the child's mental state and getting them stronger to even be able to make it through, you know? So it's a lot of that happening now. Post-pandemic, it's just across the board. It doesn't matter race, economic background, um, these parents are paying a lot of money for tutors and they still don't understand why their kid's not passing. Well, it's because it's more than that. They're genuinely unhappy. Um, and so it's more of like working on, on, on that part of things, on that side of things, um, before we can even focus on the academics. And I feel like uh, Winnie is right. We did a great job of that part at Bailey that I have never seen at any other school. I think from the leadership standpoint, right, and there's district level decisions, school level decisions, you have to have the freedom and the time and the space to do that. So, you know, I'm, I'm experiencing that in my current role, just at school wide level, I'm getting district guidance, which is very you know, and I know Metro's become more of this way, very prescripted and almost day by day. And instead, if a teacher is coming to me now and, you know what, I need, I need to just take a day. We need to do restorative circle practices. We need to do um, seminar. We need just some time to kind of dive into the human part of this. And my answer is always yes. You know, you know we, we have to allow that when we have to empower our teachers to make those decisions in their classrooms because they're seeing kids face-to-face, day-to-day. They know what they're feeling. And if they're sensing, my kids need time and space to develop that SEL of any kind, whatever it is, as a leader, I need to say yes always. And that's what Christian did for us. It was, you know, I heard someone else say on another episode, the answer was always yes. I mean, it was yes try it. Yes. And I, I still, I carry that with me now as a leader. You know, I'll joke, like, if you want permission, come ask me. Cause I'll say yes. <laughs> Just cause that's what, that's the empowerment that we felt in order to reach the humanity side rather than solely drilling the academics. Yeah, and to, to that point, sometimes I wonder if teachers just have a preconceived notion that their ideas are going to get shut down or they have no autonomy, because I've never once in my career felt like I didn't 
have autonomy or that someone didn't trust my opinion. Now, I know that that is not the truth for a ton of people, but part of me is like, but who gave you that idea? Like, was it truly your admin? Was it just what you have heard as far as rumors? And nobody, it seems, that I've consulted with has been able to really pinpoint, like, this is the person that told me I couldn't. It's just a lingering kind of idea that people start to believe and grow into. Yeah, it's very much a very much a, a struggle. You know, the thing that I keep thinking about is, um, so what was it? I mean, aside from the fact that we're all fabulous, you know, that goes without saying, or or maybe it was just that Christian's a great leader. Okay, that goes without saying. Or, I mean, but what was it? And Keisha, I think you're on to something here that Bailey became a place, whether it was because of teams, whether it was because of leaders, teacher leadership, whether it was because of the curriculum or not curriculum. Bailey became a place where teachers didn't stop themselves. Right. Right. Where leaders didn't stop themselves, where, you know, kids didn't stop themselves, except in like pretty serious ways. But, um, and, and, and then the question becomes, well, what was that? How did that become that ethos? And some of it is Christian and some of it is how the teacher leaders, how the job was constructed, but also how you, how you gave flesh to that job. And some of it was just that moment, Kelly, you, I mean, you're all talking about these moments where somebody said, go figure it out, go do it. Literally, period. (laughs) I think it was also a concept around shared victories, right? Shared victories and shared challenges. So Keisha, I don't think that teachers are taught necessarily that the answer is no. I think that teachers are taught that they have to find the answer by themselves, right? Like even the way we are indoctrinated in the school system, there's one test for one student, there's one answer, you have collaborative projects, but everybody gets a separate grade. And so we are taught to separate as soon as we enter into the school system. And then teachers take responsibility for a kid's test scores, which of course you, you blew up too. And so, exactly. I remember when we were claiming percentages of kids and we were going back and forth and back and forth. And finally, I don't know if it was me or Keisha or Wiggly, somebody was like, forget it. We're all claiming 30% of this kid and 10% goes to Dr. Sawyer. I think, I, I truly think that that's how we landed because we were like, there's no way we are about to work our tails off all year to get these test scores and then try to parse out which kids do more because we think this, we blew up that system. And it was our choice. We said, we're in this together, 30, 30, 30. No, Whitney's not the teacher of record for this person. No, Keisha's not the teacher of record for this person, but we don't care. We are in this together. And so I think the special sauce at Bailey was that we truly tore down the walls that come from being one classroom, one teacher, and we never built them back up. Once we, once we tore them down, once we decided that it was just going to be one coffee pot to serve 10 people for four years, God bless that coffee pot. We never added another coffee pot. We never added another refrigerator. We never added another trampoline. We never added another wall in that school. And that was the difference. I remember the mindset of, well, we're on the bottom of the list. So why not? Right? And I I feel like that's how it was proposed, like how it was pitched of come do the most radical, bizarre, creative, curious version of school. And we're going to change kids' lives. Are you in? Yeah. I mean, 
if you have a heart for kids and you want to change the system and break the system, like Whitney's saying, then this was the place for you. And we were allowed to do it. And there were, I don't know of any other place in Davidson County, in the state of Tennessee, that would allow you to do the crazy things that we did. So, I mean, that, that to me, that, like when you're asking that question, Barb, it was like, why not? We have nothing else to lose. Let's do it. Nothing we did. At all. And that's what the pandemic gave us an opportunity to do on a global level. And I feel like so few, at least from the school districts I've interacted with, now some did, but so few really took that opportunity to just say, okay, let's just start from scratch and go. It was like they tried to do the same systems with a small tweak and put a little band-aid and, oh, we'll go back to normal in a few months. And it's like, forget going back to normal. That wasn't even working for us. It, the system was trash before the pandemic. So now that everything has blown up, what are the different teacher models that we could use for, you know, is it okay to have hybrid you know, learning models that aren't overwhelming, some virtual, some in, per in person. Do we all always have to divide by age or can we divide by interest in a project? Or, you know, if there's, if there's 50 kids in the building today, can they all be working with the local science center to do X, Y, and Z? There's all these things, you know, that like, so when I think about post-pandemic um, as uh, in Bailey, I think if we could take the concept of innovation, being able to fail without um, judgment, human-centered kind of learning design, um, and realizing too that learning, I this is a, a mom thing and a consultant thing, learning does not only happen in a classroom, okay? There are so many different ways that learning is taking place outside of the classroom, but when we isolate it to a textbook and a test in a classroom, and that is learning, it limits everything. Be in social emotional learning and STEM, there's a ton of money coming down the federal government. So then it's like, are you taking advantage? Or again, are you doing all things with a, a little band-aid trying to hope things go back to normal, whatever that means. But if people are not taking advantage, I don't know what to say, because you're kind of given every opportunity right now. If I'm, if I am being from how I feel. So Man, Bailey was it though. If I, if Bailey still existed today, I would probably still be at that school. I would still be teaching or a teacher Me leader. Too. I would still be impact. I, I would 100%. I don't, it, it, the hardness didn't feel hard. It didn't, it felt worth it. It felt impactful. It felt liberating. Was I tired going home? Yeah. Oh, Bailey was it for me. The highlight of my career to this day. system was trash before the pandemic? Not the teachers, not the students, but the system. At least that's what Keisha thinks. Whitney, Keisha, Lindsay, and Kelly outlined a rich agenda. The importance of relationship and how teaming could create the conditions for rich relation. The importance of a nothing-to-lose attitude and a heart for kids. The capacity to fail without judging oneself or others. We'll give all this some attention in what's to come. 
To do that, I decided to check with educators in my hometown and current location, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, to see whether their perceptions lined up with the Bailey crew. Four of the five educators I spoke with were from the school district of Lancaster, a district that most would label urban. A fifth spent some time in Lancaster City, but is now a principal in Penn Manor, a district in Lancaster County he labeled suburban rural. Perhaps the strongest sense I got from the two principals with whom I spoke is, we got this. Listen to Wharton Elementary School principal, Melanie Martinez. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not worried. I, we made it through because we had a strong foundation and I, I struggle with the deficit thinking about gaps because guess what we're doing? We're meeting kids where they are. So we just have to find out where those gaps are academically and social emotionally. And I, and, and even after, so this team, you know, I was, I was reflecting with my team yesterday because sometimes I think like, how did we do it? <laughs> like really, how did we do it? And, and you know how we did it? We, we leaned on the pillars that we had already created. You know, we talked about, I was talking yesterday, you know, everyone had a different personal reaction to all things COVID. Yeah. And there were some people that really, they just, we just create space for each other here. And so if you were somebody who really had a lot of anxiety and worry and, and for family or yourself or all of that, that was okay. And if you were someone who was like, eh, this really isn't a big deal, that's okay too. We all had to do what we had to do. And I think what we did was we stayed student focused. You know, we were talking yesterday about, oh my gosh, how did we do the iPad pickups? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how did we get all of those materials to kids? And um, the extraordinary things that I know educators did all around the country to support kids, um, it was really my privilege to have a front row seat um, for my staff. And my job was to do the same thing for them. So how was I taking care of them? How was I being vulnerable, you know, and being honest about guys? I don't know. We haven't done this before, so I don't know what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was just, luckily for us, we had taken the time to build that trust and that true, true collaboration and family feel um, to, and, and I'm one, I'm a huge proponent of ownership. So I am not a micromanager and thank God I wasn't because certainly that was a whack-a-mole, right? For those in schools that had the kind of strong community Ms. Martinez describes, the pandemic revealed issues rather than created them. Baron Jones, had been a high school principal for several years and recently moved to the middle school. Like Melanie, he seemed confident that schools would find a way forward that was good for kids. But he acknowledged the uncertainty, especially about whether we, educators and policymakers, would learn the lessons the pandemic offered us. So from my point of view, being in a suburban rural school, I think the biggest thing when I think back uh, at 
of the pandemic. First thing is my first year at the high school was 2019. So I, I, I resumed a big high school, the fourth largest in the county. Um, and at that point in time, the biggest thing we thought I was gonna deal with was a phase construction project, which was gonna take over three years. And then obviously March of 2020, things changed. Um, you know, when I really think about it, I, and now with looking back, I really think the main thing about it was what COVID did was accelerate and expose many of the issues that, you know, public schools or big organizations already had. Um, and I think, you know, that is, I think, always the piece when we think about things is that we pretend in times of, of lack of urgency that we don't have some of these systemic issues that are, you know, very present. And so when we get those urgency, when things get thrust upon us and we're not able to be proactive, um, those things seem to what I call increase, accelerate. Um, and I think that's when people can really start to look at it and, and identify at this moment in time. And I think one of the biggest challenges always is when you when you take that urgency away, did you learn anything? Have you changed? Or have you started thinking in a different way about your organization and how we can educate kids? Because I think very quickly what happens is that we fall back into patterns that we've done because unlike many other fields, you know, all adults in the United States for the most part have had a miseducation of what education should be, could be, or envision how that is. And so I think that's always uh, something that we have to be cognizant of. And I think it's always one of the challenges of educators as we're moving forward, be it school leaders or teachers, um, because that is just something that's drastically different. I mean, nobody can necessarily walk into Google or Apple and say, you know, most people and say, oh, I did this. I created, you know, this, this uh, emerging technology and you're doing it all wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But every person has this experience of education being positive or negative. And so therefore, when they're sending their kids, um, you know, they have a belief based on that. And, and so that's, you know, one of the interesting things about um, mm -hmm. educating children. Well, the thing about it was what we were able to do was like everybody else. We were scrambling and, and trying to figure out ways to best, you know, educate our kids in a time that was uncertain, um, that we were that we were unsure, and let alone when it came to an idea of what the short-term, long-term goals would be. You, you know, it was the first time in my life that I'd ever experienced um, what I would call such an historical event, let alone living through it. You know, what we forget in the history books is we don't know what the duration's not going to be and what that uncertainty is. And so, you know, that causes a, a great deal of urgency. And so, therefore, we were acting and doing things that was almost atypical of our organization, just trying to survive or, or figure it out uh, at that point in time. Um, and so, you know, I think that was great in a lot of ways. And I think we were also looking at things a lot differently um, because we had to, you know, and we had to think about things like, you know, I hate to say it, even before the pandemic, you know, we had kids that didn't have certain access to resources like Internet or high-speed internet, or their own personal devices. Now, we had done things systemically, like we were a one-to-one -one school at that point in time, I think like fifth grade through 12th. What about the other grades? You know, We were thinking about what does other types of instruction or other types of choices for children and family, like we had our own virtual school. You know, We had situations where kids were requesting to go to charter schools. We were seeing these things, but I don't think we were looking at them with a critical eye of what did that really mean for us, and really thinking about why, and what does this mean? And does this actually mean that there are other ways that we can educate kids or meet other kids' needs? And then other than just the academic, is there other pieces other than just the academic piece that help kids be successful? Um, and so, you know, once again, when you're thrust upon that, I think you start to look at those things and, and, and trying to figure out why, uh, you know, the whole uh, we're flying the plane where we're building it.
Barb Smentek is a longtime high school science teacher who, like Barron, recently shifted to the middle school, in her case, Lincoln Middle, in part because she saw that middle school teachers worked together more intentionally than high school teachers did. She agrees with Barron and Melanie that our current challenges are not really pandemic issues. But I think these issues were there. I think we certainly had the issues of, of poverty. We had the mental health issues. We had the the housing issues. We had the, um, you know, students, um, you know, and transition issues. But I think since the pandemic, it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like more of these issues have come to light, it seems, I think, because of the increased communication in some ways, because um, maybe some of the, maybe the pandemic was just the thing that pushed people like, okay, we were kind of making it. And then, oh, like that hit. And it was just enough to be like, we lost that one job for a few months and that was it. So I kind of see that as, I mean, I certainly think a lot of these issues we were already dealing with before, but for some reason, it just seems, it just seems heightened. And I think another thing that I didn't mention was, you know, you sort of missed an academic year. So you missed a year of not only academic growth, but you missed a year of personal growth. I think that's another issue, too, is I think kids kind of missed a year of maturity. Melanie Martinez has more to say on the topic. You know, we, we talked about that. That first year of COVID was hard. The second one was worse because there was this false thing that everything that we were headed back into normal mm -hmm. and things still weren't normal. You know, when we were expected to run classrooms, like things were normal. And I think that took, that was harder for my staff than the first one. And so I think it was just that piece of how do I accomplish what I know I need to accomplish? And there's still some of these space guidelines and there's still some of these pieces. Uh, I, I think that COVID was the magnifying glass on things that were working well and things that had gaps. Yeah. Mental health for children especially, is broken. Mental health services, especially, I can only speak mm -hmm. for here in this county, are broken. And so when the the gaps for kids to be able to get any, a psych evaluation or yeah. get in with yeah. a psychologist, um, I will say I'm very proud of the work that School District of Lancaster does to kind of close some of those gaps for our families. Um, in tier one, pieces, you know, about making SEL uh, mm -hmm. an, an important part of not just a morning meeting, but what we do. It's just mm -hmm. how we, how we, how we are. It is who we are. And so I think that's fantastic. And then when we're looking at, at um, how they've invested in our, our social workers, how they've invested in ensuring that there's school-based mental health. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think the gaps are there. Um, and I, I do see, I, I do see um, kids struggling more with anxiety, but my question is, are we just paying attention to it more? Is it more, is it just that now kids are allowed to feel that way rather than suck it up? And acknowledge that they feel right. that way. Yeah. So I, you know, I, it's, it's just always this for me. I'm not, you know, it's, it's a balance. Um, and to me, it really doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it doesn't matter whether this was pandemic induced or not. 
um, again, we're going to meet people where they are mm -hmm. and try and figure out what they need and try and, and fill that gap. You know, we're, we're my kid, my staff, everybody on my staff knows we are building kids' childhoods. And every time I say that, it's, it goes to my center, you know, that we are a part of kids' childhoods, not only on their educational journey, but their memories. And so I want my kids here to remember being seen, feeling valued, um, feeling invested in, and, and um, you know, so much of your self-esteem is, is how you feel you're growing. Listening to Melanie is inspiring. Still, I have to say that the three teachers I spoke with were a little less sanguine and a little more frustrated than the two principals. I hasten to note that I did not talk with teachers in Ms. Martinez or Mr. Jones schools. Whatever they would say, though, it still points to the importance of the principal's leadership in responding to post-COVID concerns and to paying attention to teachers' experience on the ground. I spoke with two elementary teachers together, Amanda Akins, who is now the Dean of Students at Ross Elementary School, and Julia Rio Schwartz, who is a fourth grade teacher at Martin Elementary School. Amanda and Julia had worked together at a different school that had the kind of community we're talking about, but lost it with a change in principle. I asked the two of them to react to the term learning loss. Amanda jumped in to discount the phrase, but then she and Julia went on to spell out what learning loss really meant to them as teachers. I guess I've become kind of, it's, it's become another catchphrase in education. You know, oh, it's the learning loss from the pandemic, the learning loss, the learning loss. And, you know, I think we use the term without really thinking about what learning are we talking about? Are we talking about social skills? Are we talking about math? Are we talking about writing? Um, and then if we're going to continue to talk about learning loss, what are we doing about it? Going from pre-pandemic, during pandemic to post. Um, one thing I really notice is endurance. Um, student endurance with writing, with completion of work, with um, you know emotional regulation. It's just, it, it's, we are not through it. It is not over. Would you talk a little bit more about this? You called it endurance. Some people might call it resilience. Like what yes. is it that kids are doing concretely? So during the pandemic, there was little to no expectation to write. And I know that as a world, we are moving more towards technology, but I think we can all agree there is value and importance in being able to write with a pencil. And having a one and a half to two years of no demand of writing, I see that as that was always a tough area for students. And it just that it grew monumentally because they didn't have to do it for a year and a half. I think it goes hand in hand with with reading also endurance in general is lacking um, like a student keeping a student's attention or engagement in a task for more than 
15, 20 minutes is a struggle, like across the board. Um, so I think, yeah, again, just that idea of endurance, um, there's definitely a deficit there. Is it, is it simply that we literally lost a year of the experience in, in how to be a learner, how to do school? I mean, are you seeing things in fourth grade that you would see, you think, in second or third grade in terms of kids' capacity to push through? Or is it more than that? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, and I think this goes along socially too. Um, like social norms of nine, 10 year olds in fourth grade are, you know, what they used to be, what they are expected to be, um, is definitely behind. I pushed them on what they wanted the message from their principals to be. I want the message to be that SEL comes first. The social emotional well-being of our students needs to come first. And in her credit, she does say that. You know, she's she's very understanding and supportive. Um, and I would talk more district-wide in saying, you know, we're adopting this new program, new SEL program of ruler. ruler. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great start. My problem is you say we need it, you've paid the money for it, and you're still giving math, ELA, multiple hours of professional development time, and you're gonna give SEL 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And you're giving ELA, you know, 180 minutes in our schedule a day, and you're giving SEL 15 to 20 on paper, not even truly. So again, what I would like to see is them to walk the walk and not just talk the talk. A similar message that, you know, Amanda's saying like that SEL, social emotional component is everything. It's the foundation. It's the only way to build academic proficiency at all in my experience. Um, but I think echoing some of her sentiments, Amanda's sentiments too, is like, we just kind of get this ruler, it's like dropped in our laps, ready, set, go, figure it out, teachers. And it's expected that you're doing it every day for 10, 15 minutes. Here's a little sampling, 20 minutes of PD. It looks kind of like this, you know, dip your toes in it, but this is what it is. This is what we expect. Mm -hmm you know, and then the rest is academic focus. Um, and it's, to be honest, it's overwhelming. <laughs> like I, I, this is the first time I've really experienced ruler and I don't feel like I'm doing it well. Um, I don't feel like I have the time and space to plan for it, um, to truly like get into deep conversations um, and reach my students with the time allotted for ruler and, and SEL through morning meeting. So I followed up by suggesting that teachers need to be emotionally healthy themselves to be able to do this. Amanda responded. I think you hit the nail on the head with, um, we first need to make sure that we as adults are emotionally intelligent. Um, my previous school counselor and good friend once said, um, 
would you want your child going to school and being taught to read by a teacher who couldn't read themselves? Of course not. So we can't expect nor do we want teachers teaching a social emotional curriculum without first being able to practice it themselves. And so I know, you know, at some buildings who had like early adopters um, worked first on the adults and I could see a difference in their language and um, the way they were creating classroom communities. Um, but I think in order to accomplish that across the board, there, there has to be that team feeling within the entire school that it's not, this is my kid, it's this is our kid. In the process of describing what she needed post-pandemic, Julia told me what she liked about working in her first school, the school that had the kind of community that Melanie Martinez highlighted. What resonated with me in my initial experience and why I wanted to get back to that place, um, it was the community as a whole that was created there. Like everybody was on the same page. All the expectations were the same, whether you were in one classroom upstairs, another classroom downstairs, in every single hallway, in the cafeteria, on the playground. It did not differ teacher to teacher. Um, and the kids feel that, you know, it's a, it's a feeling, it's a sense of community at large. And then it breaks down into smaller communities to your classroom, right? Like your little family community within your classroom. But that is only as successful as your large community, your whole community. And I, I feel like that school was so successful mm -hmm. in the social emotional realm because they accomplished that. And I know it took years and years of work and it took everybody, every teacher, staff member, custodians, office workers, like whoever getting on that same page. And once that was, I truly think like it was achieved almost to like a top level, top tier point. Um, and the school just functioned so seamlessly. Unfortunately, Julia was transferred to a different school in the district because of student enrollment numbers. And even more unfortunately, the life and learning affirming climate in her first school would disintegrate rapidly with changes in building leadership. Echoes of the Bailey experience, don't you think? But that doesn't change Julia's point, that relationship matters. That was the common thread in all my conversations, no matter what role the educator was in. Connection is the foundation on which all educational efforts are built. Barb Smentek, a teacher with 26 years of experience, highlighted the feeling of belonging at her school. It's a nice community in terms of the feel of it. Like I love how the, all the teachers are just so warm and so kind. And so like, you know, I do like you walk in there and you feel like, ah, this is kind of a place you want to be. Um, for me, I'm doing my Lego club and the robotics club. And that is, that has been like a whole kind of game changer for me because I never did anything like that before. And it's nice to give kids a different opportunity to try, you know, something different. And that does build confidence and self-esteem. As far as like overall, I'm trying to think, 
I don't know. A lot of it is, I mean, I think there's a really strong community with the educators there. Like, I feel like, you know, the teachers do work together and there's, and we don't have a lot of turnover and there's like a real system. Like, you really feel like you belong there. Like, they do a lot of teacher community building, which I think then does translate into kid community building. Baron Jones talked about connection across constituencies as the keystone. Some of my goals this year was in my first year is about increase our connectedness and our communication. Mm -hmm. um, these are two of our big goals. And it's not just communication among staff and the principal, but also with our community, right? To make sure that we're having this circle of conversation with them. Because, you know, I think one of the things we sometimes forget as educators is how valuable parents are with, with us uh, and partnering with us to work with students. Um, and so making sure that we're having that community, um, that communication, make sure we're having that connection, making sure that parents know what we're doing um, mm -hmm. and giving them opportunities to hop on board with us and, and that partnerships is huge. And also when it's teaming, you know, the idea is always about um, this idea of making a bigger school smaller. Something that I charge the teams with is that we're going to come up with some solutions um, to do that. You know, some of the ideas are like, let's call and connect with all the seventh grade parents and eighth grade parents. How can we connect more positively? You know, how can we work with our students, you know? And I think one of the other interesting things, especially I think that's unique to middle school is, you know, middle school kids, they can really, they, they can really um, seem illogical to adults because where they're at. And I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that some of the kids yeah. that are pushing us, pushing us the furthest away are the ones that we have to, we have to chip away even, we have to go even harder at, we have to go even stronger. We have to put yes. more intention and more effort yes. at to get there to really make that connection. As I listened to Principal Jones suggest that the teachers call all parents and obviously needed action, I wondered how overworked teachers might hear it. It's also worth wondering whether too narrow a focus on social and emotional learning can need, lead to neglect of academic development. While elementary educators Amanda and Julia worried that we might only give lip service to social and emotional development by continuing to emphasize in time and evaluation criteria basic academic skills, Science teacher Barb Smentek worries that our efforts on SEL might cause us to lose sight of why we're there. What I what I also noticed myself is that um, I think academics has become like when I when I think about what I have to do in the morning, it's like oh I have to talk to this kid, I have to get this class in order, I have to like the academics seems to take almost a back seat, and it's like how do we then? through all that say okay well we've got this room now running now where these kids are in a space where they can learn or are in a space where we can move ahead so maybe we can i think i find myself thinking way less about academics and way more about behaviors and mental health which kind of bums me out sometimes again you know what i think as educators we are always growing kids in a variety of ways Every seemingly academic lesson is an exercise in how one lives in the world, and every skill acquired, practical or ethical, relies on some understanding of the way the world, social and physical, works. Is connectedness the basis of that integration? The Bailey team obviously thought so, and so do the educators I talk with here. 
All the educators I talked with were able to acknowledge that some good things have come out of the pandemic, even if it hasn't wrought the kind of transformation some of us were hoping for. Principal Martinez offered a laundry list of new and important emphases that seem to be powering a recovery. Listen, there were things that came out of COVID that are we we've improved on. Yes. When I, you know, when I think about um, I think that staff, things that maybe they didn't even think about appreciating, they appreciate now. Um, and so also instructional technology, how we're doing grouping, how we're really focused on intentional relationships. All of those pieces, I think, really grew. The fact that now we can we we think to offer Zoom meetings to parents for parent conferences. You know, um, the accessibility and parental involvement opportunities are huge. You know, being able to have a guest speaker Zoom into the classroom, things that um, we would not have thought about before because we didn't we weren't forced to. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that they've done a nice job of saying, oh my gosh, we're so glad we can be back doing this, but let's not throw everything away. Yeah. You know, what did what did we learn that's worth carrying? So what would these educators do in the face of our pandemic hangover? Not panic, stay the course. I heard that. But another clear emphasis was on expanding personnel. Listen to Amanda Akins offer a call for the kind of staffing the Bailey team imagined and arranged. I'm sure I've heard of our fair funding lawsuit that the district oh, yeah. has been a part of for many years. I so I yeah. was kind of a teacher spokesperson. I testified in that lawsuit. Yeah. So I've talked a lot about where funds should go. <laughs> and you're so right. The, personnel is really where your biggest bang for your buck is. There is no reason a school like King Elementary only has one school counselor. Mm -hmm. We have so many students that are in constant fight or flight mode that those emotional needs need met before they can be successful in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as a school counselor, you're pulled in a million directions, just like teachers. And I just, I remember, you know, my kids were kind of trained to ask to speak to me privately in the hallway. So I always wanted to honor that and I'd step out and I, you know, I have one eye in and one eye out and I'm trying to give this student the right. attention that they deserve while also making sure there's not chaos happening. And you just feel awful because that kid deserves your full attention, but you can't give it to them. So then you're calling the school counselor, but all classrooms in the building are calling the school counselor and we are not meeting the emotional needs of students. So having another body in the room who is willing to listen to children, um, help them process, take them on a walk would just make a world of a difference. So what's needed? In addition to feeling valued, heard, appreciated, um, I would want to work somewhere where there was enough staff to meet the emotional needs of our students and have that team feeling where, you know, I go to work and I feel, I feel connected. We want the kids to feel connected, but we also need to feel connected. Um, and so somewhere where I felt like I had the freedom to make my professional decisions 
for what my students in front of me need. The focus on personnel as an important area for investment cuts across districts, as Baring Jones reminded us. We also looked at increasing our staffing, right? So looking at our counseling and, and using some teachers, doing some instructional coaches, still working with our um, teachers with those pieces to, to try to make some systemic changes uh, in the sense of really trying to over, you know, increase our overall you know, product as a school uh, of what we're giving our kids. I think you know, our investment in our teachers to make, you know, like we paid for, and actually we just got last year, we put them in our budget, is that we paid for some instructional coaches that are really to identify, to connect more with kids. You know, we have those kind of tweener kids, you know, they might not be a student identified with a specific disability. Um, they might not also be a kid, um, but they're, they're still not doing as well as we want. And, they, and, and I like to often call them that, you know, Penn Manor High School is a large school. So 1,800 students, you know, I like to call them the invisibles. Um, these kids that walk around, they're kind of doing what they need to, um, but do we have enough touches with those kids? And, you know, and so getting some more staff that are really focused in and honing in and be more attuned to that, um, I think is definitely one of the better things that we did to identify um, to that it's something systemic that we can continue on. And once you get the needed personnel, you have to take care of them. We take care of teachers so that they can take care of students. But it's very disheartening to know that even your own home administration continues to kind of push down like you're failing. Um, and I think for me personally, being in a place, being in a district that I don't feel that I'm failing because there's just too much on our plates to possibly do it all or do it all well. Um, so, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm having to pick and choose things because I'm so spread thin, but then even if you do those things well, you're like, well, I didn't do this and this, I didn't accomplish this because we are so spread thin. Um, it's a very defeating kind of atmosphere. Julia is a competent and responsible teacher and she is disheartened. More important, she's not alone. From a teacher's perspective, it's important for administrators to make the tough choices about what we are asking teachers to take on. For Barb Smentek, that means a principal who, to use Melanie Martinez's term, buffers for the teachers, and also a central office that limits initiatives, a favorite educational word. You can hear both Julia and Barb's frustration, and it's frustration that I encounter often enough to believe it ought to be taken seriously. Too many different officials are dreaming up too many answers to the problems. When I ask Barb what teachers needed right now as they strive to reestablish and strengthen connection, this is what she said. Less initiatives. I think you've got... And uh, initiatives are good, but oh my, like, and by the time the day was done, we had a, a laundry list of things we were supposed to go through. And I know some of it is, you know, mandatory state stuff that you have to do, but it's kind of like everyone kind of has their own, okay, well, we got to do, you know, training. So the kids do the pre-college training. So we got to make sure they're ready and thinking about college, you know, as early as second grade, we've got to make sure that, you know, we've got the, you know, we're doing the new Danielson stuff. So we're doing all that. We got to make sure that we're doing the ruler training and the mood meters. We got to do that. We got to make sure. So like it's, and then, oh, oh yeah. And then it's kind of like the, 
with all this stuff and and talking to kids and parents, they the docu they want you to document like every time you say hello to a kid. Like, oh, put that in the notes. No, put that in the observations. No, put that in the spreadsheet. No, why don't you put it in all four of them? Why don't you know just make sure you document, document, document. And like I get that, but it's like, okay, we're so busy documenting that. It's like, let's just do it. Like talk to the kid and fix the problem. We don't need a every single time we so it feels like the burden of it has become it's there's always one more thing no matter what it is it's always you know so you it's it people are going to burn out i mean it's just so um it just seems like there's so many expectations and so much okay you know learn the pbis lingo learn the the Danielson lingo, learn the this, learn the that, and like, okay, it's like, come on, at some point, what are you taking off the plate? And above all, we have to hold on to our goals for students. Melanie Martinez started us off by building kids' childhoods and their memories. Baron Jones put it this way. I want them to become the best version of themselves, but that sounds kind of cookie, but you know, we need to give these kids habits that they can realize their own success. You know, and that looks differently for different kids. You know, we have kids that are very um, gifted, um, that are very good at school, but you know, do they still have all the other pieces that are gonna come along that are gonna make them uh, a great citizen and make them a great person? So what can and should be happening at the good school? post-pandemic. Concerted efforts to create connection and community through habits and infrastructure that allow teachers to work constructively with each other, with the students who need them and the parents who support them. Redeploying resources to ensure that personnel numbers and educator expertise meets the needs of the students actually in the school shared expectations, and shared responsibility for each and every kid. Autonomy to respond to challenges, even when that occasionally results in failure. Fewer initiatives. Let's put an exclamation point on that one. I think Melanie is right. We got this. Not because educators have fixed everything, but because we know that the task remains ever the same, to come together, to know our students, and to respond richly to them with respect, encouragement, and continuing challenge toward growth. And of course, educating responsively means space for decision-making. Educators at every level can only do their jobs when they have a fair measure of autonomy, as Lindsay Nelson pointed out in the opening segment. Next time, we take on this question of educator autonomy in a hyper-politicized school climate where scores and surveillance are the policy of the moment. I hope you'll join us. <laughs>